I'm very excited about this sermon today. As Pastor Kyle said, it's, we're, we're talking about worship. I, I believe that worship is very foundational in the life of any believer. And it's central to the life of any church corporately. And, and because of that, it takes on a very unique role in our lives. Uh, I've titled this sermon today, Mythbusters, because like anything, we come to the table when we talk about worship with preconceived ideas as to what it is. And, and these ideas may be based off of heritage, they, they could be based off of background, they could be based off of what you've read or seen, or maybe you've opened up YouTube and you've watched Hillsong and said, that's worship. Today, we're going to look at what the Bible says about what worship is in the life of the believer and corporately in the life of the church. And as I was praying through our sermon today, I was drawn to the TV show Mythbusters. Uh, naturally, because of the, the fit with the name. Uh, I, I never watched that TV show much. I don't know if you have, uh, but I was fascinated by this show. Because in this, you had a random assortment of people. You had a scientist, an engineer, an athlete, a stuntman, and then you had this one guy who was just absolutely back crazy enough to do whatever the other guys asked him to do when proving whether or not something was a myth. So today, we're going to do something similar. Although, I'm not going to do any stunts for you. At least, not intentionally. Uh, these steps can be, can all blend in together. Today, uh, instead of standing on science, we're, we're going to stand on the Word of God. Amen. To see, what, what does this say about worship? Because I believe that like everything else in the believer's life, when you're trying to figure out what something is or how it should fit with you, this is the place to start. Amen. So let's begin together today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for worship. We thank you for that time that we just had to respond to you as we sang. Lord, to worship your holy name through music. God, I pray that today, that as we continue to worship through opening your word. Lord, that you would speak. God, that your Holy Spirit would rain down upon this place. God, send your manifold presence to land upon us today. And guide our thoughts that we may know you and understand what worship is in a greater way. Lord, so that we can, by vehicle of the Holy Spirit, enter through the doorway of Jesus and know the Holy of Holies. Know your presence. We offer this time to you, and we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, today we're going to talk about some myths on worship. And we're going to look at some of those preconceived ideas and seek to bust those myths. So the first myth that we're going to look at today is that worship is not just singing, and it's more than music. Worship is not just singing, and it is much more than music. Now you may be sitting there saying, hold on, stop right there. Go ahead and hit your pause button because my whole life I've heard this from some worship leader, maybe wearing a guitar, maybe he was wearing a tie, but you know how those worship leaders are. What they say, hey everybody, let's stand up together and let's worship through music. So 
you, you can look at me and say, hey, it's guys like you that have, have pre-ingrained in my thought process what worship is. But as we look at Scripture, we see that worship is not just singing, and it's more than music. Open up your, your Bible, get out your tablet, your phone, open your Bible app. Let's look together at what the Bible says about worship. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And we're going to start together today in verse 1. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, the, the verses will also be up on the screen. Verse 1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice that is to be holy and pleasing to God. For this, check this out, this is true and proper worship. Amen. Didn't talk about music, did it? It didn't even mention music. Instead, it says that worship is to be an offering, a response, something that we give to God for who he is and what he has done by virtue of creation, by virtue of redemption, by virtue of the fact that he welcomes us into his arms. Worship is a response. It's a response to God. Looking first at this, we see it says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we see there that worship, it's unrestricted. And it's fueled out of a heart of obedience. Worship is unrestricted and it's fueled out of a heart of obedience. You see, have you ever thought this? You know, I, I just can't quite get into worship because, you know, if I could sing like Meredith, man, if I could, if I could do that, I'm telling you, I would dive head first into the deep end. I, worship would be on. Or you say, man, if I could, if I could just play the keys like, like Hal or like Leslie, I would be worshiping then. But, but you see, when we look at what Scripture says right here, it's not talking about giftedness. I want you to, to hear that with me. It's not talking about giftedness. Instead, it's talking about our posture. What is our posture in worship? What is, what is the, the place of our heart in worship? Because here's the deal, and I, and I hit a little bit of a pause button. You know what? Not everyone's gifted the same. I, I think Hal and Leslie should be on a mic and on the piano. But you know what? Maybe that's not your giftedness. Maybe your giftedness lies in teaching our adults or in raising up the next generation of the leaders, not of this church, but also of this country. Maybe your giftedness is going and helping someone who is unable to cut their grass. Because you see, all of those things, in light of what we just saw, become worship when the posture is a grateful response to God for who he is and what he has done in our lives. So in that, we see 
that whether you can sing or not, when we gather for corporate worship, because of who God is and what he has done in our lives, we respond to God unrestricted out of a heart of obedience. But you know, it, it doesn't just mean that worship is, is music. Because worship can be more, more than that. You see, worship can be prayer. Worship, like I just mentioned and alluded to, can be service. Worship, as you see with Mary Magdalene, can be weeping. Worship can be dancing. Now, I know some of y'all just said, hey, I know you've been on staff for like three seconds, but this is a Southern Baptist church, and we don't dance. I have news for you. David danced before the Lord naked, and it was worship. Go with me on that one, okay? Now, now, what, catch me here. If next Sunday when we kick up worship through music, and you decide that maybe I should come down and do a soldier boy in worship during, during the song, that's not going to fly. Okay, none of this is going to be going on. <laughs> the idea, though, is, is present. Worship is all about our posture. And worship is an unrestricted response to God, fueled out of a heart of obedience for who he is and what he has done in our lives. But you see, there's another thing about this. There's another item to this. That next point down there, that next blank is authentic. Worship, not only is it unrestricted, fueled out of a heart of obedience, but worship is authentic. And, and I want us to open up and look at a story. I want us to open up and look at a story together. Open your Bible with me to John chapter 4. And we're going we're gonna to camp out here throughout our sermon. Open with me to John chapter 4. Where we focus here in this story is the part of Romans 12.1 that says, in view of God's mercy. Have you ever thought about that? In view of God's mercy. In light of the fact that he took the cross, we worship. And you see, nothing is hidden with God in that because he knows us. Let's look at what that knowledge looks like. We're going to start reading here in verse 7. At, at this point in Jesus' life and his ministry, he's been in Judea with his disciples and his followers, and they've been ministering and serving there. They've come under some persecution, and so they're making their way from Judea back to Galilee. Okay, uh, and, and in this point, it's kind of, if you go on a long drive, at some point you're going to stop and you're going to fill up the tank and get something to drink. Well, that's kind of what they're doing here. Jesus is at a well. He is about to get something to drink out of this well. He sent his disciples into the city to get something to eat. So he's just hanging out by himself. And that's where we pick this up. A woman comes up, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Verse 8, His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? I want to hit a pause button right there. In a time where 
we seem to have some racial and social economic divides in our country, I want you to know something. One, that is a direct result of sin and brokenness and not of God. Two, that's not something that has happened in the last 200 years because you're looking at a racial issue right there. So in that day and age, two things are going on. One, Jews look down on Samaritans, okay? There is a track, and we don't go to the other side of the track in a big way because we do not mix oil and water type situation right there. The next thing is, ladies, while we value you today, we, we are grateful for you today. That's not always been the case, unfortunately. In that day and age, women were viewed as lower class. So you have a Jewish man, top of the food chain. You've got a Samaritan woman. They don't speak. He does not talk to her. She does not look at him. We're not having a conversation. And so that's where we're heading. Let's keep going here. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Check this out. She's pushing back. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? She's basically saying, hey, dude, check yourself. You don't know what you're talking about, okay? You're being kind of creepy. You shouldn't be talking to me. What is going on right now? Do you ever feel like you're so consumed with what's right here in front of you that you miss when Jesus is going somewhere. I bring your thoughts back to the encouraging note that you're not the only one and that it's been happening for a long time. Let's continue. Jesus said in verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She still doesn't get it. Check this out. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming down here because I'm running into creepy guys like you, right? <laughs> still, he's going somewhere. The woman, verse 16, he told her, Hey, go call your husband and come back. This is where we take it to the next level. Verse 17, she says, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you know what? You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Do you ever feel like you're not good enough to worship? Do you ever feel like Something's happened that's disqualified you or made you not good enough to come into this room and worship. You see, there's nothing hidden with Jesus. 
He, he knows those closets that you've shoved everything in that you don't want everyone else to see. He knows them. And, and, and there's a lie that has been spun to us by Satan where we feel like we have to be good enough. You ever feel like that? Like you walk in and, and something happened this past week and you absolutely blew it and you're disqualified from worshiping. That's a lie. Yeah, maybe you had a rough week and you came home and you said something to your spouse and you blew it. I'm not good enough to worship. Or maybe, maybe it was the last week of summer and your kids saved all the crazy for the last day before they went back to school and they're having a riot in the middle of the living room and you say something to them and you blew it. And you're disqualified from worship. That, that's a lie. That's one of the best lies I've ever heard. You see, Jesus never said that. Go with me here. Jesus never says you have to be good enough. There's never a point where Jesus comes to the table and says, you've got to measure up to here in order for you to be good enough to worship. That's not the way it works, church family. You will never be good enough. I will never be good enough. And I'm a pastor. I do it full time. That's, I'm supposed to be good enough, right? It says in Ephesians 2 that while we were dead in our sins, Jesus came because of his great love for us and made us alive together with God. He came right in the middle of our brokenness. He came right in the middle of the messiness and said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. There's nothing about us in that statement. It's all about Jesus. Because here's the deal. He knows you. He knows exactly who you are. And he knew exactly who you would be when he took the cross meant for you. And the cross meant for me. There's nothing hidden in worship. Instead, we boldly approach the throne room of God. We, we come unashamed because His grace is enough for our past. His grace covers our sin. There was one sacrifice for all time. And in that, we can come amidst the brokenness, amidst the messiness, and dive headfirst into worship. Because it's all about Jesus, and it's all about his ability to save. So our response is one of gratitude. It's one of great thanksgiving. Because when I couldn't do it, I realized I could never do it. But guess what? Jesus came and made a way. So our worship, it is unrestricted, fueled by a heart of obedience that is fully authentic before the Lord. The next myth that we look at today is that worship doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. Worship doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. You ever feel like this? Oh, 
man, it's been a week since I got my worship on with my church. I'm going back. And, oh, it's been a rough week. Who haven't even thought about this Bible. It's time to worship. I, I want to confess something to you that you're not alone in this room. If you've ever felt like that, I've felt like that. Because life gets crazy. Let's just be honest. But worship was designed to not just be once a week for 45 minutes. If, in fact, if, with all the love in my heart, I say this to you. If you view worship that, that way, you're missing out. And I don't know that you've actually engaged fully in worship the way it was biblically designed to be. But don't take me at my word for it. Let's open up our Bibles together. Let's look at worship the way it was designed to be. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. At this point, Jesus has already gone to heaven. Uh, The Apostle John is writing. We're going to start right here in verse 1. And I encourage you with something. As a creative person, I have a large imagination. Some of you don't. We're not all wired the same. You don't have maybe a large active imagination the way that I do. But I encourage you in this, don't allow this just to be a cursory reading. Because what you'll find is, this is awesome. Okay, chapter 4, let's do this. After this, I looked up, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Hold on to that idea of door, please. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. At once I was in the Spirit. Did you just catch all of that? Did your your mind wrap around what that was? Because, see, this this isn't fantasy. See, this this is not Cinderella in a carriage. This is real life. This is realer than real life. This is eternal. This is God-ordained. Check this out. Continue to read this with me. At once, verse 2, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone like an emerald encircling the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, check this out, around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Now, have you ever seen someone that looks kind of funky? You look at them like, oh man, you're kind of funky looking. That is funky looking, right? The first living creature was like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third had the face of a man. The fourth was flying like an eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they did not stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's one example 
of what we call heavenly or eternal worship. Back up with me 700 years to Isaiah 6. Go back. If you hit Psalms, take a right. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, again, this is 700 years and some change before the account we just read. Starting in verse 1. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. Sound familiar? And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that sound familiar? 700 years and basically the same thing. The truth in that for us is that Worship doesn't just happen on Sunday. Instead, worship is eternal, it's originating in heaven, and it's incredibly significant. You see, this is not something that Chris Tomlin invented. This is not something Hillsong United thought up, okay? This is not something the American church marketed, and all of a sudden we have worship. This is something that God created God ordained, and he purposed for the exaltation of his name. Worship has been happening before the foundation of this earth. Worship will continue for eternity beyond this earth. And if you feel like, I just can't get into worship, understand That worship was designed to flow throughout your life as it does in heaven. This incredibly significant nature of worship points to a couple of needs in our own life. The first need is for a quiet time. The eternal nature of worship happening unseamlessly in heaven points to the fact that daily, We should be spending time with the Lord. Turn with me in your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew 6, verses 5 through 6. Matthew 6. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Now that's a pointed statement for you. Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full, in parentheses, already. It's not coming. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There is a great need in the life of the believer for a quiet time. Because to be honest, that's where the reward happens. That's where the victory happens. 
It's like a bodybuilder. You ever seen one of those guys that walks in the room? You're like, dude, uh, you're, you're wearing a shirt, but you might as well not be. You're so jacked. It's like, I mean, where, where do your shoulders end and your neck begins? I mean, but they, they don't just get like that by hanging out for one hour a week. It's daily. It's sacrificial. There's a need in our lives to grow our worship muscles. And that doesn't just happen once a week. Huge need in our lives for a quiet time. You know, the second thing, let's open to Hebrews 10, verse 24. The second thing that this points to is discipleship. There's a huge need in our life for life group. Are you active and engaged in the life group here at our church? Because when you're active and engaged in the life group, a great thing happens. Yeah, you, you have a place to learn about the Lord, but you find that you do life with other believers. And there's a reciprocity that happens. Their growth spurs you on, and vice versa. Verse 24 of Hebrews 10. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a huge need in our life and biblical mandate for discipleship, given the eternal, ongoing nature of worship as it was designed and as it's performed in worship in heaven. The third thing, look with me to Acts 2. We have a huge need in our life for corporate worship. For corporate worship. This is corporate worship. We've talked about a quiet time. We've talked about small group discipleship or what we call life group here at Quail Creek. But there's a huge need and biblical precedence for corporate worship. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders, and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, seeing their possessions, excuse me, selling their possessions and goods they gave to one another who had need. Verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Here's the key for us right here at Quail Creek. This is the money. This is the money. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And what happened? God added to their number daily those who were being saved. God added to their number. You see, guys, I, th I think God is on the move here at Quail Creek. Do you feel that? Do you sense that? God is on the move here at Quail Creek. But his movement does not and cannot happen apart from you. Do you hear that? That's not a challenge. That's an encouragement. 
The fact that God, in his infinite wisdom, will, and might, is saying, I'm going to use Quail Creek to do awesome things. That's a blessing. That beneath his sovereignty, as a church, we're doing awesome things. I want to be a part of that. I want you to be a part of that. But here's the deal. Here's how that all comes together, is that God will move with or without us. So how does he move with us? How do we, in a better way, move with him? Well, there's only one way. We can't just move and hope that God kind of directs it and flaps his arm and positions us the right way. Instead, by knowing him daily, by knowing him in a life group, and by experiencing the fullness of the manifold presence of God as it lands upon our corporate worship times, then we will move under his direction. You ever felt like someone said to you, hey, this is the direction we're going. Hey, we're going to go this way. In God, the only direction is his. What needs to be seen is whether or not we are available enough and receptive enough to follow that path. I believe that we are. Let's continue to do that. Let's continue to do that. The final thing for us this morning is not as much a myth, but it's, it's something that's very practical for us and I think gets glossed over a lot in the life of especially the Baptist church. So don't be scared. We may go a little Pentecostal on you right now. And it's okay. It's okay. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm going Pentecostal. I didn't believe you. Turn to the person on the other side of you and say, we really are going to try to go Pentecostal. <laughs> How do we worship? How, we've talked about what worship is. We've, we've talked about its setting its origin, but how, how do we worship? This is that question under number three. And the answer is in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Have you ever heard that said before? This is, this is a participation. Have you ever heard that said before? Do you know what that means? I got a lot of, well, let's talk about what that means because there, there's something tractionable here for us. Let's go back to our original story in John chapter 4. At, at this point, Jesus has, has shown to, to this wonderful person he's meeting with that there is nothing you can hide from me and we're not talking about physical water. We're talking about something much more, something much deeper, something much more real in our lives. We pick up uh, in verse 19. She says, sir, I can see you are a prophet. <laughs> Her response, 
You know the deepest, darkest secrets of my life that no one else knows. Oh, I can see that you're a prophet. We're still not quite there yet. But that's okay. That's her journey. We're talking about ours at this point. Verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus says, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the, the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. And salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23. And here's the difference with Jesus. Because we see that he's not confined racially. He's not confined socioeconomically. He's not confined to age or education or stature. He is unrelenting in his call to all to know him. He says to her, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and the worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? What is he even talking about here? Let's, let's unpack this. It's less complicated than I think we think it is. It's less complicated than I think we think it is. We worship in spirit, for God is spirit. We worship by vehicle of the Holy Spirit. And then in truth. Well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Well, how do we worship? If they says we worship in spirit and truth, we worship by vehicle of the Holy Spirit through the doorway of Jesus and into the Holy of Holies. Because, see, back during this time before the crucifixion, there was a temple, a church a lot like this, but there was a veil, a thick curtain that separated everyone from the presence of God. But with Jesus... In his cross, all have access. All have the right. All are open to knowing God. And so, by vehicle of the Holy Spirit, we enter into the Holy of Holies through the doorway of Jesus and the cross that he took for us. Amen. Have you ever said to yourself, man, I really need a fresh touch from God? Have you ever thought that? Like, oh, my heart is just dry. I'm not, I'm not clicking. The, the things in, in church and in life group that used to, used to light me on fire are just small sparks that hit by, by the side of my radar. And you say, oh, I, need a, I need a fresh touch. Have you ever wanted that? Or, or, or maybe, maybe as a parent, you're sitting there saying, God, I need the wisdom to know how to best teach and raise and mentor my children, how to best formulate their worldview so that they go and they live the best life that God has for them. Or maybe you're saying, I, I need a piece of God's heartbeat so I can know how to best formulate and schedule my finances. Students, 
Maybe you're saying, what am I going to do in college? What am I going to do for a living? I don't want to live with my parents all my life. Who am I going to marry? For you, for you, for those of us that are not in high school, I just freaked them out, by the way. How do we gain access to that kind of knowledge? Because by and large, we are not smart enough or complex enough to understand what that will look like 60 years down the road. As a 34-year-old, 35-year-old, I can't know what my decisions right now are going to look like in 30 years. I do not have that ability, but yet something transformational happens in worship. And I'm not just talking about worship through music. I mean as we know God, respond to God, commune and connect to God, we begin to know his heartbeat. I mean, I love my wife, but do you think we would have a great relationship if I just hung out with her for one hour on Sunday? No. I wouldn't know her. I wouldn't be able to understand her. I wouldn't know the things that she does that are unheard. I wouldn't know what that means. I wouldn't be able to connect with her. It'd be a roommate situation. She's doing her own thing. I'm doing my own thing. Well, that's like Jesus, isn't it? And for us to know the heartbeat of God, we've got to spend time with him. And we do that through the vehicle of the Holy Spirit, through the doorway of Jesus on the cross, and then we enter into the Holy of Holies, where his presence is, where the wisdom is, where that fresh touch that you're desiring is. That's where the victory is. That's where the hope is. That's where the wisdom is. And then, all of a sudden, you, you find that as I'm looking at a decision, I am gently maneuvered in a direction I didn't know that I was going to take. Worship is transformational. That's our final thought for today.